Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Welcome back to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Today we're going to be talking about settler colonialism and Indigenous resistance in so-called Canada. Uh, around the lens of what socialists need to understand. Um, so let's get right into it. I'm Posey and with me today are Taylor. Hi everyone, I'm Taylor. Hey Taylor, and David. Hello. And David is gonna start us off. So the first thing we need to talk about is what is settler colonialism? So this is a, a kind of colonialism uh, in which a settler population makes a colony its permanent home and then goes about building a society that's similar in a lot of ways to the society that those people came from. So we can think about what happened in this part of the world, in the Canadian state and in the US, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, and then also in the 20th century, uh, Israel. It's all examples of this, this kind of process. Um, all, you know, all these societies today are still settler colonial societies. And so this is a different kind of colonialism than you can find in some other places. Uh, there's been colonialism for a long time, long before there was even capitalism. But we're talking here about the kind of colonialism that happens under, under capitalism. Um, and if you look, for example, at, at India, which was ruled by the British for many years, there was never a very large British population ruling uh, in India, they, there certainly were people there, uh, but they, there was no attempt to move a whole population of people from Britain to India and then establish themselves there, where that's very different from what happened in, in this part of the world in, in northern North America on Turtle Island, where there were large numbers of Europeans who came and went about dispossessing indigenous people and then uh, trying to, to build a society on their on their backs. So it's a different kind of colonialism. This is a specific kind. And there's a really, I think, important insight that Glenn Coulthard, who's a Yellow Knives Dene Indigenous academic, a very politically committed person, wrote an excellent book called Red Skin, White Masks. And Coulthard makes the point that, um, I'm just going to quote him here, that, that the means by which the colonial state has sought to eliminate Indigenous peoples in order to gain access to our lands and resources have modified over the last two centuries. But he goes on, the ends have always remained the same to shore up continued access to indigenous people's territories for the purposes of state formation, settlement, and capitalist development. 
So there are lots of different techniques and methods that can be used, but the goal of settler colonialism is the same. I guess it's also worth mentioning, since we're recording this uh, right just before the 150th anniversary of the signing of Treaty 1, um, which covers this, this part of, of Canada, um, it's worth thinking a little bit about that, as it's, there'll be a lot of stuff in the news about it. And I just wanted to bring up, to, to remind everyone, um, that there's a whole history here which is not often talked about. Um, and there's a historian uh, named uh, Krasowski who's got an excellent book called No Surrender, which is a very detailed look at the numbered treaties signed across Canada. And he points out in this book that the tree commissioners who represented Canada had, a, in his words, a common negotiating strategy to discuss only the benefits of a tree and to ignore its liabilities, that is liabilities for Indigenous people. And Treaty 1, like the other numbered treaties, has what's called a surrender clause in it, in which Indigenous nations agree to, to quote the treaty, cede, release, surrender, and yield up their land to the Crown. But Krasowski points out there's no evidence that the Canadian treaty commissioners ever discussed the surrender clause with Indigenous people. And M.A. Kraft, who's an Indigenous legal academic, has argued that if the surrender clause had been discussed during the negotiation of Treaty 1, it would have resulted in, in her words, in an immediate breakdown in the negotiations. And so I'm just bringing this up. So just give an example, kind of local or closer to home example of some of the, the history of settler colonialism that gets passed over when people talk about treaty. This might be a good time to switch our focus a little bit and talk about how this remains a settler colonial society. So maybe I'll pass it over to you for that, Taylor. Yeah, so when we think about settler colonialism and how it persists today, like David mentioned, there's a lot of different ways that you can pursue colonialism, but ultimately... As quoted by Coulthard, uh, the ends are always focused on, as he says, the state formation, settlement, and capitalist development. And that can be through more blunt and obvious ways, especially in the past, where you are very much physically dislocating people, you are dispossessing them from their land, but we also see it in our institutions as well, such as residential schools and the child welfare system, uh, among many more. All of these different systems exist in our current society as a tool of colonialism and settler colonialism specifically to displace Indigenous peoples from their land and ultimately use that land for capitalist production. And really, there are ways in which it is more subtle and ways in which it is very clearly really genocide. And it still serves that same means, that same ends, I should say. And we can see that really in every aspect of our society, I would say, again, criminal justice, education, child welfare system. And that is an ongoing thing that is by the state. No, I think that's, you know, that's a hard, that's a hard one to answer the how it persists today one, Taylor, because it's like everything, absolutely everything about our society, um, which I'm going to talk about. We're, I think that that's good because we have a lot more to, to discuss 
And we're kind of going to go into the next section of what does this, what does this all mean for socialists in Silicon Canada? We're all socialists. Uh, I'm a settler. I think David and Taylor are both settlers. You know, what does all this mean in terms of our political action um, and hopes for liberation? And I'm going to start us off by talking more about the Canadian state and the kind of current context that we're in, in terms of, you know, the official line of reconciliation. We've had the Truth and um, Reconciliation Commission in, in 2015, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. That was, I think, came out in 2019. As, as you mentioned, Taylor, you know, this kind of new maybe settler understanding of what has happened and happening to Indigenous people here as genocide. And I like this definition of reconciliation from a book called The Reconciliation Manifesto by uh, the late Arthur Manuel. It's a great book. I really recommend it to, there's a good one to, you know, give to parents or siblings or maybe someone who isn't even a socialist but doesn't really understand um, the history of basically land theft and colonialism in Canada. So Manuel defines reconciliation as the term reconciliation now covers any and all manipulations or diminution of rights and title. The government and the Canadian people have fallen in love with reconciliation. They do not really seem to understand the concept, but they truly love that word. Everything is reconciliation. When they join a round dance, they call that reconciliation. When their eyes tear up in discussing our poverty, that is reconciliation. At the same time, when they are denying our constitutional rights, they call that reconciliation of Aboriginal title with Crown title. In fact, every new plan to steal from us is called reconciliation. So, you know, pretty biting words, but I think that that's really true if you actually kind of pick apart what, you know, the current Liberal government means by reconciliation. It means so many things. It's such a slippery term. And a lot of the time it just means, you know, how do we get rid of this problem? The problem being that the title, crown title to land is not very secure. And there's a lot of Indigenous resistance to the resource extraction that take, like, takes place on their land. The other part, he kind of continues later on that I also wanted to say, which was kind of, you know, that was the state side, the, you know, Canadian citizen side. Quote, many Canadians are obviously delighted by this sort of meaningless, no strings attached, quote, reconciliation. For them, it is having your cake and eating it too. You not only get to keep the stolen land, you are forgiven for the theft, and you can emotionally reconcile all this with our leaders. So the other thing that I want to bring up in this uh, discussion of reconciliation is uh, Trudeau Sr., Justin's father, and the 1969 white paper which didn't actually come into policy, but I think it reveals a lot about what the kind of goal of, it's not just a liberal government, it's any government in Canada of policy regarding indigenous people. So if you haven't heard of it, uh, the white paper attempted to get rid of all existing law regarding First Nations, Inuit and Métis people in Canada. So that included the Indian Act and existing treaties. And the goal of this was to basically treat Indigenous people as a minority group in the context of a multicultural and pluralist society, um, which is basically just assimilation and continued land theft. And the larger context here was this national project of adopting multiculturalism 
as a way to deal with both Quebec separatism and the changing demographics of Canada due to waves of immigration. Because by the 1980s, uh, Canadians of British and French heritage, so those primary settler colonial groups, um, were only made up uh, less than half of the population, I think about 40%. So there was you know, changing demographics in Canada and there was you know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, multiculturalism was adopted as official policy. And there was an attempt to also kind of deal with the um, indigenous question for the state using the, this sort of language and understanding. And if you read the white paper, it actually frames um, this assimilation as freedom. So I'm gonna quote it here. Uh, it said that the policy would enable the Indian people to be free, free to develop Indian cultures and environment of legal, social and economic equality with other Canadians. So I think that's important to know just because that's not very different, you know, we would say indigenous now, um, that's not very different to the way government talks about reconciliation today. Um, framing it as equality and moving forward and healing. But if you actually look at whether or not uh, land rights or title are recognized or self-determination and self-governance, they're not. And you know, there's so much more I could say on this, but I just thought that that was for me a good example of the way that you kind of have to be, as a socialist, because that's the section we're in, as a socialist, you have to be a bit wise to the language um, that's being used and what it actually means. Because when the state talks of reconciliation, they aren't really talking about, you know, giving land back, recognizing self-determination or self-governance. Yeah, I think that's, that's great what you've said there. I think, of course, there are some non-Indigenous people who start off trying to learn more about reconciliation and begin to dig deeper and come up with an understanding of settler colonialism and can that can really be a radicalizing thing. Um, but that's certainly not the intention behind the, uh, this agenda, the way that uh, Arthur Manuel described it. So we're gonna talk now about some guidelines for uh, non-Indigenous socialists and how we can think about uh, how we go about supporting Indigenous movements and Indigenous self-determination, some principles and so on. So I'm going to start off by just mentioning one, which is that our starting point should be that we support liberation from settler colonialism, not just softening it, not just reforming it to make it less oppressive. So the, our goal really should be to support full and complete genuine decolonization, an end to settler colonialism. So um, of course, there can be all sorts of reforms that can be one that would reduce the weight of oppression. And if Indigenous people are fighting for those, those demands need to be supported. But that's very different from an end to settler colonialism. So our horizon should not be the present somewhat less nasty, right? Our horizon should be the horizon of, of liberation, uh, which is what a lot of Indigenous people today are talking about or pointing towards when they talk about land back. Yeah, and just to add on to that point, for us, that means, and we think for any non-Indigenous socialist, that means an unconditional support for the right of those oppressed nations, in this case, Indigenous peoples, to that self-determination. And that's what the recognition, especially that self-determination, is actively withheld and stifled by the state through settler colonialism. And when we're thinking about 
self-determination, you know, there's an argument there that many of us, of course, are barred from that one way or another, but especially in the case of Indigenous peoples and their right to their land and culture, everything. We need to be by their side there and support them in pursuing that self-determination and also recognize that our liberation is tied up with theirs and that in order to achieve liberation for all, we need to be there by their side in solidarity actively and support them through that process and advocate for their self-determination as well. Yeah, that's great, Taylor, which kind of leads to the next thing of, you know, some of the nuances of that um, in terms of our political responsibilities as non-Indigenous socialists, um, because, you know, it's often phrased as listen to Indigenous people, um, you know, amplify voices, all this kind of language. But there is some, you know, so you have to do some critical thinking on your own. Um, and you have to, to take responsibility and, and take action because, you know, Indigenous peoples aren't a monolith, and I think David's going to talk about that more, but, you know, you, you also have to decide whom you listen to and what actions to take. Um, and uh, something that I wanted to add here is that colonialism is not a behavior, it's a system. So it's not merely, an, you know, it's not really being less racist. Um, it's working with others to dismantle um, white supremacy and, and settler colonialism here, which is a bit more complicated than not being an asshole. Um, but, you know, it, it can be kind of maybe, maybe not easy, but sometimes there is a bit of a, a passive approach of just kind of like waiting, um, waiting for the, you know, the, the group um, that you want to, you know, want to follow or something um, to act and, and just follow. But sometimes, you know, you have to take, um, take a stand and also be willing to take the heat and be unpopular um, for being an outspoken opponent of settler colonialism. There are a lot of people who benefit from the current system, even though, you know, it is complicated. Basically, you know, you, you have to stand with the oppressed um, and you also have to be thoughtful and critical and, you know, try your best to understand how the system works and what your role is in dismantling it. Okay, so the, the next one that I want to talk about is our need to recognize that there are different politics and different social classes among Indigenous people. It's a mistake to politically homogenize Indigenous people. In fact, it's ultimately it's a racist thing to do to treat Indigenous people as all the same, right? So there's all sorts of different political points of view, all sorts of different social positions. Um, you know, just to take a couple of more recent Winnipeg examples, there were the young Indigenous people who, you know, we celebrated when they took down the, the statues um, on the grounds of the legislature on, on July the 1st. Um, there are also some Indigenous people who spoke out against that, right? Like think of how Murray Sinclair and Wab Canoe were against that action. So. There's obviously a whole range of different points of view here. Um, you could think as well uh, among Métis people in uh, this province, David Chartrand, the head of the Manitoba Métis Federation, you know, is pretty politically uh, aligned with the, the liberals. Um, and there's a group of 
indigenous people, Métis people organizing under the banner Red River Echoes, who have really clearly challenged uh, his leadership of the Manitoba Métis Federation. So we have the responsibility to actually thoughtfully assess the different politics that are that are there. And, and also to think about how different political outlooks can be influenced by people's different social positions. So we need to make a class analysis of Indigenous peoples the same way we do a class analysis of any other group of people. Um, and just recognize that, for example, there are some Indigenous capitalists, right? Those who are actually um, sometimes administering businesses that are owned by First Nations um, or owning, running small businesses. There's a whole range. So those are, those are real. There's a really, you know, kind of notorious example that I'll mention just so that we recognize what this can be like, that something called Project Reconciliation, the name sticks in my throat just to say it, um, which was started by Delbert uh, Wapas, former chief of Thunderchild First Nation in Saskatchewan. And this, is, uh, this group aims to buy a stake in the Trans Mountain Pipeline and eventually own 100% of the pipeline. Now, the claim is they would then use the revenue to establish a sovereign wealth fund that would provide money to First Nations. And people can sincerely believe that this would be a good way to try to increase, you know, improve the living standards of, of First Nations people. But we have to recognize what this actually would amount to, right? To have First Nations capitalist ownership of a pipeline that shouldn't be built. Um, that's, you know, contributing, of course, to, to climate change. So I'll just uh, quote from Howard Adams, who was a, a Métis uh, revolutionary socialist who in the middle of the 70s wrote a really good book called Prison of Grass. And Adams in that book points out that in his words, it's a common practice of imperial governments to use middle-class native elites to provide support for their administration. And that this provides political stability for the capitalist system. So I think Adams was absolutely right just to point out that uh, you know settler colonial non-Indigenous governments will use particular groups of Indigenous people to try to maintain their rule and try to maintain the settler colonial social order. And uh, we shouldn't be naive about that. Another thing we wanted to touch on as well, again, building off of those points, is when we consider ending settler colonialism, what does that look like? And is that possible under our current system, which is capitalism? And our perspective as an eco-socialist group is that that is not possible, really, when we think about settler colonialism and capitalism, the two are very much inseparable and play into each other. Our perspective and our vision for the future is one in which capitalism is actually replaced with a democratically run society uh, by regular people, one which is not driven by profit. And this is something that can only be achieved through the self-emancipation and the self-transformation of those masses of people by themselves through struggle and in this same society, the relationship between people and nature would ultimately be transformed to abandon capitalist and settler colonial rule and the systems that come with those systems, really. And especially when we think about land in the context of a capitalist state and a settler colonial state, it is something that is very much transactional and something that is owned. 
but indigenous peoples have always struggled against this, against that abstraction and the commodification of land into property. So under that capitalist system, we simply cannot uproot settler colonialism because, again, they benefit each other and they both serve to uplift the ruling class and take away and exploit the working class, those most vulnerable, and in the context of this episode, indigenous peoples and uh, removing them from their land. Yeah, uh, totally, Taylor. And I like that you're talking about the transformative thing, um, the transformative point, because I'm going to talk a little bit, though you mentioned it earlier really, really well, uh, the difference between solidarity and allyship, as it's often understood, and the importance of building political relationships. Um, And so there's, I would say, many limits uh, to the current understanding or, or practice of allyship. Um, It's kind of become a a more popular uh, phrase or term. And there are also many, a lot of good critiques out there. I'm not going to give the the best or the the single critique, Um, but there's a quote I like from this pamphlet that was published in October, 2020 from the Transnational Institute. Uh, And the pamphlet was on anti-racism. And they say, quote, In popular or mainstream discourse, solidarity is increasingly being replaced by the framework of allyship or as a transactional rather than transformative relationship. Allyship reduces solidarity to a fragile politics of temporary togetherness between groups or struggles that will remain otherwise separate. It is predicated on a vertical relationship between partners rather than the more generative horizontal process of building solidarity across difference. Meanwhile, the move towards a transactional logic of solidarity transform it into a mechanical, almost market style exchange. So I think that that quote, um, there's, a, there's a lot in there. And I think that something that I like about it is it, is it demonstrates that within the process of solidarity, as you said, Taylor, about the transformative nature of struggle, is that there's also something really powerful and transformative about struggling with others who are oppressed differently under the current um, systems than you might be or your group might be. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's a really important part of struggle and it really shouldn't be thought as, you know, a charitable helping thing or a passive supporting thing um, because it's so fundamental. And I find that for settlers in Canada um, who claim allyship, often it's very patronizing and also conditional. It's usually the allies in comments who will be the ones tone policing and and want points for, you know, thinking that residential schools were bad, Um, which is just a a very, you know, very surface level uh, way of looking about Uh, looking at at building um, power with other groups. And I think that there's another quote I wanted to provide um, that's from the Aboriginal activist group uh, from Queensland, uh, Australia in the 1970s, which is quote, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. 
And I think there are a lot of implications in this saying, and it just shows that, you know, things really change when you have an understanding that no one will be free on this land until we are all free. Um, and I think to me, that is kind of the, the main idea of solidarity and a solidarity approach versus an allyship approach. I'll just mention in case anybody wants to look up the little document published by the Transnational Institute that Posey mentioned, it's called Recovering Anti-Racism, Reflections on Collectivity and Solidarity and Anti-Racist Organizing uh, by Asfar Shafi and Ilyas Nagdi. But Recovering Anti-Racism is its name. So I'm gonna pick up on the thread that Posey just was ending with there um, and pose a, a question that's gonna take this in a, you know, to, to another level, I guess hopefully, um, which is the question about the relationship between working class liberation and the struggle against capitalism on the one hand, and the struggle for indigenous liberation from settler colonialism on the other. And whether these really are bound up with each other, as the saying, you know, that Posey quoted from Australia uh, would have it. And I'm going to suggest, yes, that in fact, um, they are bound up with each other in a, in a couple of ways. And the, the first um, is that Indigenous struggle against colonialism, where Indigenous people assert their needs against profit and against colonial rule, exposes a lot about the reality of the society, you know, if you actually pay attention to it. And that can be very radicalizing for some non-Indigenous working class people, um, in this, radicalizing in this, the true meaning of that word, which is often, you know, abused today, but um, the idea of actually going to the root of things and recognizing what the roots of oppression really are, are like. And we saw this at the beginning of 2020 with the really inspiring solidarity organizing um, in solidarity with the Wet'suwet and you know, land defenders happening uh, out West. And there were a lot of non-Indigenous people who, as they moved into solidarity there, I think came to really understand uh, a lot. And that was a, an important experience. And then the, the other piece of the puzzle here, which I think is a little bit more complicated, more, more difficult and less understood, is that you know, here in the Canadian state, um, as long as it's a settler colonial society, and as long as some, in fact, lots of you know, non-Indigenous people identify with our ruling class, when Indigenous people struggle against that ruling class you know, and challenge the settler colonial social, social order, as long as that, that keeps happening, then what we're having happen is part of the working class is bonding with the enemy. And that is a really serious political problem. I mean, to the extent that that happens, the process, the, you know, the crucial but very difficult process of the working class coming together and forming itself as a class for its own self-emancipation against capitalism is weakened, right? That bonding with the enemy weakens our ability to, to come together to fight for our own liberation. So uh, whether it takes the form of you know, people buying into scapegoating of indigenous people and blaming them for problems that they have nothing to do with whatsoever, um, or, you know, buying other kinds of divide and conquer tactics that get used by, by governments and sometimes by employers as well. Um, you know, these kinds of ways, what non-indigenous working class people are doing is in fact bonding with the very people who are keeping us all down and, you know, the people who are steering or helping to steer the, uh, the system that's, that's threatening humanity. And so there's a, an old saying, I mean, it's Karl Marx, who said back in the 1800s that a nation which oppresses another cannot itself be free. And I think in a phrase that really, that really sums it up when we think about the situation here. And so the, uh, the, thing, the conclusion then is that support 
for indigenous freedom from settler colonialism is absolutely essential. You know, non-indigenous people have to be in solidarity with the indigenous freedom struggle. And just because on the one hand, it's an absolutely vital struggle in and of itself. And also because supporting indigenous liberation is in the self-interest of the whole working class because it weakens this major barrier that I've talked about, a barrier to working class self-emancipation. But to really get that, you have to have a radical understanding of what is actually in the interests of the working class, which most working class people, of course, of course don't have. But as eco-socialists, we, we can see that it's in the, the long-term interests of all working class people to you know, free ourselves from, from the system. Yeah, so with everything we've discussed, we kind of want to think about looking forward and thinking about movements that have happened and are ongoing and also what we can expect to happen next, especially, for instance, following Canada Day 2021 and all of the movements that came out of that and the rallies and everything. One movement in particular we wanted to touch on was 1492 Land Back Lane. And if you aren't familiar, this is the site of a protest that's still ongoing in Caledonia, Ontario. Uh, it started in July 2020 when land defenders were occupying territory that a development company, I believe, by the name of Foxgate Developments was supposed to build a home development. The land defenders were really there because they were saying that the development company, they were on unceded Six Nations territory, and this is a uh, conflict, if you want to call it that, but not really. It's unceded territory, and that relationship there dates back to 1784. But they have been occupying that territory since July 2020, and I believe they actually just reached the anniversary recently, as well as the development was actually canceled recently, as in July 2021. And this it is a big deal currently because Landback Lane, 1492 Landback Lane, and if you don't know, it's also the numbers 1492 actually refer to the year that Columbus reached the Americas, which really marks the beginning of European colonization of North America. But I believe the OPP has spent over 16 million in response to their occupation, trying to fight them. And I know that there is a lawsuit going on as well, yet they're still there, still defending their land, what is unceded territory. And I think for me, that was a really powerful thing. And it's instances like these where it's important for us to especially stand in solidarity and really support those communities in any way they can. And again, really defending their land as well as their self-emancipation and their own experience. Yeah, I thought it was really amazing to see uh, the ultimate success after like, a lot of people put in a lot of effort um, to protect that land. But something that's interesting about the Haldeman Tract, which is the, the treaty or the land claim, um, that if you look at a map, like 
all of that land is just southern Ontario, like a huge part of just the outer Toronto um, area, which is where my family is from. So yeah, it just shows the the, the dispossession, like even the, the breaking of Canada's own laws to, to dispossess nations of their land. And the other thing I was going to talk about kind of um, struggles that we can expect or things that we can expect next. So I have a couple of ideas. I'm not Nostradamus. I don't know everything, obviously. But what, you know, we were talking before recording this episode of of things that we can expect to happen in the near future and longer term. And I think one of the things we're going to see short term in the wake of the uncovering of these mass graves from residential school sites, there's going to be more, more graves found. And we're going to see increased pressure on governments to do something about it. You know, and these range from that Canada should be tried in international court to other kind of more surface more symbolic gestures. And what I predict is that we can expect more symbolic gestures from the government and back padding after they do it. So if you think about, you know, the apology that Stephen Harper gave for residential schools, or any of Justin Trudeau's speeches and tears about reconciliation, I think more, more stuff like that, they might do some of the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But if they do, it probably won't be that many, unfortunately. So that's what I think will happen in the short term. And, and I think there will be a lot more resistance and protest around that as well, that hopefully will be radicalizing for a lot of non-Indigenous people in Canada. And then in years ahead, I think that with, well, we're going to see, you know, seeing it now in a smoky city, uh, but increasing impacts of a warming climate and also increasing resource extraction to deal with capitalism's crises and the economic slump. And something else that uh, 1492 Land Back Lane made me want to talk about here is that, you know, even if that the land theft of Indigenous peoples in Canada is not just for resource extraction, like we see a lot of it in that area with, with pipelines, but it's also, you know, golf courses, like the Oka Crisis or Ganesatake resistance. It's also suburbs. So I could even see, I don't know, this might be me going a little farther, but you know, even if this uh, capitalist state does try to do something in regards to changing the energy sector um, to be more, quote unquote, green, uh, green capitalism will still need land theft as a foundation. So it's not just the oil and mining uh, sector that impact um, indigenous land, though that is a really big one. It's basically all development on this land. And I think in regards to this development or in reaction to it, there will be more land defense and protest in the face of these projects. And there will be more policing and criminalizing of these struggles. So we've already seen in Alberta and now here in Manitoba, Protection of Critical Infrastructure Act, I guess it was implemented in Alberta. I don't know if it's been implemented yet here, Bill 57, if you're a, a local listener. So, you know, we're seeing preemptive action on the state in order to even, you know, these things are already criminalized, but to further make land defenders terrorists as well. So I think that that, to me, is the main role of if you are a radical, if you're a revolutionary, if you are a socialist, I think it is our role to be unequivocally on the side of this struggle 
against continued land theft because there will be struggle and you know you can kind of join it or be passive and I think that based on all the things we've talked about today I hope that we've you know been convincing that it is you know the right thing to do um, for all of our liberation to be a part of that struggle. David do you have any ideas for the future? I think you think you've covered a lot. I guess I would just say that for for years now, there's been this growth, what some people call indigenous resurgence. And it's, you know, it's wonderful. It's extremely important. And it should be inspiring for every non-indigenous socialist. There's so much to learn uh, from trying to build political relationships with people who are involved in that, you know, reading some of the really remarkable stuff. There's all sorts of amazing cultural production happening. I mean, um, it's 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 really important. And for the reasons that you've talked about, that's going to continue to run up against different manifestations of settler colonialism. And it's going to be very politically significant. And uh, it's going to throw these kinds of issues up in different ways, you know, we, that we can't predict. Um, but it does mean that we can expect that it's going to keep happening. And so people who do consider themselves socialists and supporters of the Indigenous uh, struggle for self-determination really need to sharpen our understanding uh, so that we're prepared to be useful in uh, the times ahead. Yeah, so thank you to Posey and David for joining me today to have this really good discussion. Um, We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to learn more about Solidarity Winnipeg or follow us to see when new episodes are up or when we have public discussions, anything like that, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. And we also have a website at solidaritywinnipeg.ca where you can actually sign up for a newsletter. And we'll also send out newsletters when we have new podcasts and events or if there's anything significant locally happening and support is needed. Thank you so much for joining us and see you next time.